Hello, I'm June Reith. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And this time we are continuing our reading of Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake. Um, we're back from our summer break. It's been refreshing and, well, I don't know, has it? I don't know. I've been slightly refreshed. <laughs> yeah, sl- yeah sl- slightly. I think slightly. I think slightly is the <laughs> correct term. Yeah. I feel like... I feel like every time we sit down to talk, one or both of us is slightly more worn down than before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think uh, if you if you talk to me, um, if you talk to me two weeks ago, I definitely would have been there. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it was it was good because I got some progress with big work projects, but. Um, yeah, very. That was that was exhausting. Uh, nothing to do with GIU. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's it, right? Like the um, the project is always good. It's the all the other shit that's going on in life is the uh, the obstacle. Yeah, um, that's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're back with Merlin Sheldrake. We're going to do chapters three, four, and five this time. Uh, then next time we'll finish it all up, and uh, we'll be on to the next thing. Um, so yeah, chapter three, The Intimacy of Strangers, is I think one of the most interesting chapters in the book. It's about lichen, um, a kind of uh, high, symbiotic fungal thingamajig. Um, and, but really it's kind of a chapter about the limits of life and the kind of limits of identity. Um, yeah, this is an awesome chapter. It's so good. This is so good. Um, yeah, I, 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 it's kind of following up on some of the mind bending stuff that we covered in the last episode. Um, this is similarly mind bending, uh, <laughs> this chapter. <laughs> it's so interesting. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it opens up with some talk of like how lichen have been taken to space as part of experiments and like exposed to, um, radiation and all kinds of, uh, horrible conditions in space to test the limits of survivability and to, as the chapter will it will kind of elaborate, it's going to test the uh, panspermia hypothesis that like life on Earth could have been transferred here from other planets via uh, meteorites and and so on, and like could you know like in a like forms of life attached to meteorites and survive reentry? Could they survive to travel uh, travel through space? Um, that's kind of one of the setups here, um, and the other setup is the. The like um, the dual hypothesis, right? That like in 1869, the Swiss botanist Simon Schwendener um, came up with a dual hypothesis of lichens, proposing that they were actually two. It was a composite organism of two organisms, a fungus and an algae. Um, and this was, you know, <laughs> predictably, this this hypothesis was widely rejected and seemed to be ridiculous, and then was eventually accepted wholesale. Um, yeah, because um, the prevailing opinion in biology at the time, um, and so still, like you know, at least in in common sense, very much still uh, the case now, uh, is that species diverge and descend from their own lines. Um, and the idea of convergence or uh, interlinkage 
in evolution is something that is um, seen as sort of on an aesthetic level, uh, like contrary to the principles of what we understand nature to be. Right. And I mean, like, I think in there you can see some of the, I mean, I guess the classic kind of Marxian thing of like in a, in a, in a highly capitalistic and like com competition oriented kind of society, you just kind of presume that everything's about competition. And when you're presented with evidence of collaboration across species and across kinds of life, it's just it rejected immediately. It's like, that's, that's ludicrous. Um, even when the dual hypothesis was starting to be accepted, it was still kind of understood in terms of parasitism that like, oh, one of these is the master, the other's the slave. Um, and it becomes apparent with closer study that no, it's, it's a mutual benefit sort of thing. It's a pretty weird arrangement, but both organisms get something out of it. And the fusion of the two produces a kind of, um, produces an organism that can do things that neither of the two can do on their own. Is it the case that the, the trick here is that the, al the algae can photosynthesize and the fungus can break up rock and digest minerals, and that's the, the two, the twin benefits they get? Uh, yeah, I believe that's correct. Um, uh, so it says, uh, Schwendener proposed that the lichen fungus, uh, known today as the mycobiont, uh, offered physical protection and acquired nutrients for itself and for the algal cells. The algal partner, today known as the photobiont, uh, a role sometimes played by photosynthetic bacteria, harvested light and carbon dioxide to make sugars that provided energy. So, yeah, it's uh, the, the, the fungus can provide protection and uh, in some ways collect nutrients, um, and the algae can um, uh, get, uh, yeah, you do photosynthesis uh, to harvest light and carbon dioxide, which makes sugars, which the, uh, the fungus can use, yeah. And there's an important point here that um, once the dual hypothesis was accepted, it became a kind of new way of thinking about life and about like a kind of whole new principle. Yeah, exactly. This is the thing that's very surprising to me is that this was actually the origin for the very concept of symbiosis. <laughs> yeah, it's not right. Like like it's it's not just that they discovered or debated that lichen w could be symbiotic, it's that there was no conception of symbiosis in biology prior to the study of lichen. It opens up a whole new realm of possibilities for thinking about life and thinking about all these kind of collaborations between organisms. Yeah, and I mean, it's not to say that no one had ever thought about animals cooperating or anything like that before. It's just that in biology proper, this was not something that was thought or conceptualized in such a way that you could categorize anything as symbiotic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a section then on, um, I mean, as, as is true of this book in general, there's these lovely kind of sections detailing the author's uh, escapades going around um, British Columbia, paddling up to islands caked in lichen. It's all wonderful. Um, yeah, I was I was just looking at some uh, photos of the BC coastline uh, the other day, and was like, oh yeah, there's the there's that uh, lichen that they're talking about in the book. 
Um, <laughs> he uses that experience to kind of get into what Lycan do. Um, they're often the first to show up um, on, say, new islands that are formed by, by volcanic activity that are completely fresh environments. Um, they're the first to get there, and they, they can start to break down the rock and establish soil. So lichen digests the rock. Once the lichen dies, it turns into soil, more or less. Um, so pretty fundamental to um, to life on Earth, terrestrial life, at least. Um, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, incredibly fundamental uh, to terrestrial life. Um, and then, you know, in terms of aquatic or marine life, there's, there's obviously uh, a whole bunch of um, consequences of having soils being produced and running off and having you know vegetation all that existing and all all of that kind of stuff on the on the land that ends up like bleeding into the the aquatic uh, ecosystems yeah this notion of islands is also then used to explore the um panspermia hypothesis um or just to kind of start to explore Con the concept of island in general, like, you know, I I an apparently isolated little system, um, you know, uh, is the earth a living island? Is it is it a sealed system in that kind of sense? Or is it something you can kind of go between um, in the same sense that like these new, um, you know, new, new land masses that are formed by volcanic activity are not sealed systems that, that spores blow in on the wind and... Um, you know, life gets to them. Um, could it happen across space? You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, is it is that possible? Is it possible that you know, lichen came to Earth in, or you know, the components of lichen at least the the fungus and the algae came to Earth um, in uh, the same way that you know they were so instrumental in. Uh, facilitating the movement of life from the oceans to the uh, to to ground to to uh, yeah solid land. Um, yeah, it's it's a notion that's kind of developed throughout the chapter, but I guess it's probably worth just kind of getting a bit more into it. That like um, it, it in the end, it turns out it's fairly plausible. Um, one of the things is that like um, large meteorites that generate a lot of friction in the atmosphere and so tend to burn up. And so experiments where you strap some lichen to the outside of a re-entry vessel, once you look at look at it afterwards, there's there's nothing left. It's all burnt away. But a lot a lot of like celestial material arrives on Earth as like dust, like micro particles. Um that, you know, it, it just it's dust, it just falls down. It doesn't really burn. Um so yeah, semi plausible at least. Um Yeah, the the um intensity of heat for the dust going through the atmosphere is is less extreme so it's possible that they would have entered that way um or they could have entered uh on the inside of a of a, a meteor of some kind there's a note somewhere in the chapter that um like they find lichen inside lumps of granite and like they can't figure out how the lichen got inside in the first place and how it survived sealed inside it exactly yeah yeah, like this stuff gets everywhere. Um, and so it's very plausible that it could be on the inside of a meteor. Um, and they they also have done like, you know, they first had to do this sort of test to see, 
okay, could a lichen uh, survive the forces involved if a uh, like stellar body was uh, blown apart into meteorites, right? Uh, sorry, my terminology, I'm sure is totally wrong, but asteroids, <laughs> I guess it would be it. Um, uh, and uh, they did those tests of like, okay, like, you know, sort of like if the moon hit the earth, what would that look like in terms of pressures? And yeah, the lichen could totally survive that. That was not an issue. Um, it was only the question of reentry that was like, well, there's probably ways it could work, but the ways we can test are not going to give us any evidence that it's possible. Yeah, that's that's another through line through this chapter is that like lichen are extremophiles, like they not only survive but thrive in pretty intense environments and under pretty intense circumstances. Um, like they can they can be dehydra dehydrated, at which point they're not vulnerable to like cosmic radiation or anything, and then there's once they're rehydrated again, they just carry on as normal. Just it's pretty weird. Yeah, they like put them on the outside of the International Space Station and bombarded them with cosmic rays, and they're sort of like, "Yeah, what's the big deal? Like, it's fine." <laughs> like they, they don't care if they get frozen and thawed out and heated up and all that kind of shit, um, which is pretty in pretty intense. Um, there's a wonderful like segue then from this uh, exobiology stuff, like through um, this biologist Joshua Lederberg, who became very concerned about this notion of like celestial contamination um on uh, in that panspermia can register but then he also discovered um in a different instance that bact he discovered horizontal gene transfer that bac bacteria can trade genes horizontally with each other which again is this thing of like it's contrary to the classic notion of biology where traits are inherited from your parents and only from your parents um, it's it's a vertical transfer only, but like you can like you can just in the same way I could walk up to someone and grab their hat and wear it. <laughs> like a bacteria can just grab a trait from another bacteria and, and use it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, it is pretty wild, uh, and this is one reason why bacteria can mutate so quickly, right? It's because they don't actually have to go through generational change in order to have a change in traits um, because yeah, it's like you don't have this like interrupted mutation. You can have like continuous mutation, like continuous and punctuated, I guess, because you, you also have the, the factor of generational change. Um, yeah, like, and it's it's very non-linear once you get to the horizontal stuff and being able to acquire traits wholesale. Um, yeah, very strange stuff. So, like, genomes had been considered as closed systems, but now we're seen to be cosmopolitan places where all kinds of mixing happens. Um, yeah, really levering the concept open. This seems to only be possible in humans uh, if you have, like, um, what is it, like, congenital twins? Uh, is, that, is that the term? Uh, where you're, you're, you're attached to each other uh, in, the, in the womb? I think there's something, there's some mention of that, and there's other mentions of things like chimerism and stuff in humans where um, people for various reasons are just made up of different genomes. Like um, one of the classic, one of the classic examples of chimerism is 
Um, somebody who's given birth to a lot of kids will have the kids' DNA in, inside them because, you know, they've been host to them or whatever. Um, so if, if you, if you take a blood sample from her, there's a non-zero chance you'll end up getting one of their, one of her kids' like DNA fragments instead of hers or whatever. And th that's just the tip of the iceberg. It gets weird. Um, like, uh, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's very similar to this thing where, I don't know, like in, in the kind of, culture wars at the moment, obviously with trans stuff, there's all this kind of shit about like the kind of like biological absolutism of like the XY chromosomes and stuff like that. But if you talk to an actual, talk to an actual geneticist and they'll go <laughs> ridiculous, you know, it turns out there's all kinds of weird and wacky shit that happens. Like, you know, obviously people who appear to be completely normally cis or whatever in some gender or another or some sex or another have absolutely wacky fucking genes when you go look closely, but nobody bothered to look closely because why would you, you know? Um, so that's kind of analogous to what's going on here. Or it, it's, it, that's the, that's the, the highful tip of a long history of this, the field, the field of genetics being fucking levered open again and again by these discoveries that like shit is just so much weirder than you think it is. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Um, yeah. Like, yeah, the, this, this chromosomal nonsense that is peddled is like, uh, this is like a sexual essence or something, but the expressions of the chromosomes are like wildly diverse and complicated. And yeah, and I can totally see how there would be that kind of chimerism that could happen as well. Um, it's just uh, that uh, it's it's to say that uh, humans, uh, you know, humans obviously contain bacteria, and so in that way, we are we are perfectly capable of uh, engaging in kind of this horizontal uh, gene transfer. But in terms of our own genome, uh, you know, it's um, we're maybe a, a little bit more isolated on a spectrum than we are than the bacteria are in terms of their rate and uh, uh, like permeability. Um, to horizontal gene exchange, um, it it, it kind of makes me think of like the old like uh, uh, like final or like saga games. Uh, these were like quite obscure Japanese RPGs where like I I I just remember being kind of blown away by this as as a kid because it was like the idea of bodies in those games was so fluid, um, where it was like you would start out a game as like, I am human fighter. It's like, okay, cool. But then it's like, every time you beat a monster, it would be like, do you want to eat part of the monster? And then it's like, and then it's like, well, I don't know. Sure. And then your character just irrevocably becomes like a completely different species. Oh, that rocks. Um, That's so cool. <laughs> oh my God. And I was like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, you could like equip items and just become like a cyborg. And yeah, it was it was wild in terms of that sort of like, yeah, like chimera like mutation of of characters um and so whenever i read about this kind of stuff i always go back and think about those childhood memories of just being like what the hell yeah yeah for sure right um yeah and like that that's definitely in the same keeping of like treating organisms as open systems not like closed predetermined things 
Um, um, there's a note kind of here that, like, you know, um, this is somebody, I think, like, Trevor Goward um, is the researcher who kind of coins the phrase the lichening rod effect, where, like, studying lichens invites these flashes of insight and these, like, you know, like, um, supercharging your understanding, right? That, like, the, the, the study of lichen informs us about life in general, um, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, it it it's like um, what do you call it? Uh, it's like a, a a liminal. It's it's like a liminal thing that whenever we examine it in some depth, new depth or context, it displaces our certainties about what is going on with life and what the world is like. Um, it's, it's kind of like how, you know, to use this, this, like the, the lightning rod is like a pun, right? It's like, you know, lightning rod, right? Uh, to, to go with that sort of, um, metaphor, it, it's like that idea that maybe life got started because you had, um, like a electric charge from a lightning bolt hitting some, like a pool of water, um, it's kind of like that, but with concepts about life, right? Is that 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 you you encounter lichen in some new way, uh, and then you're just like, oh shit! Like you, you know, you just your whole uh, mental universe becomes rearranged and mutated because of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Um, it's um, which is which is like I don't know, like it, it, that's that's always been the uh the satisfying and kind of compelling aspect of like philosophy or just like studying anything really is that like you can because i mean I, I guess like um you know some listeners might be baffled as to why we're talking about fucking mushrooms on the show but like you know it, it can really mess with your understanding of things and you have to then reconfront everything you understand in new terms yeah because whatever you encounter in biology or develop in biology as like a new concept is just the beginning of the conceptual uh, influence and effects of what you find, right? Like it, like it will then become a metaphor that is used like everywhere. Um, uh, so it's, it's this, this is just the, the, the starting point of all the changes that are wrought by that. Yeah, and, like, uh, the author is kind of quoting Trevor Goward here as, like, um, saying that, like, what this does, for him at least, is kind of raise new questions about about life and about identity and about interkingdom collaboration. Um, so it's it's an intuition pump to keep to get you going on all kinds of new questions. Like, what what is it? What like what really is our relationship to the world? What what the fuck? Are, what are, what are we even? You know. Um, if you start asking what a lichen is, you're not far from asking what you are. Um, and this moves into some of the wackiest stuff I've ever fucking heard. Like the um, the, the the theory of and what what's the what's the fucking word endosymbiosis? This is fucking nuts. Yeah, this is this is some wild shit. This is uh, it's it's very like 
uh, very like Junji Ito body horror shit uh, that is going on here. Um, it, 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 yeah. No, this I th- this was this is so interesting. Um, yeah, this is crazy. I love this. Um, so, like, I guess the, the the main idea here is like, he kind of does some setup with life being divided into three kingdoms, right? Like, you have bacteria, archaea, and eukarya. Um, we are the latter kind, eukaryotes, um, and the same goes for fungi and plants and all kinds of shit. Like, there's a lot of eukaryotes out there. Um, any any multi cell organism is a, a eukaryote. Um, yeah. Um, and one of the things that differentiates eukarya, eukarya from bacteria or archaea is that eukaryotes have kind of like specialized, like larger cells with specialized structures like mitochondria um, that are the, the energy furnaces of, of cells. And then plants and algae have like stuff like chloroplasts, which do the photosynthesis bit. So they're like bigger cells with specialized machinery in them. Um, but the crazy thing is that it seems, and I, I mean, I think this is now accepted, um, accepted science, which is, again, it went through a cycle of being rejected and finally accepted. But the notion is that eukaryotes actually acquired their mitochondria by devouring a bacterium and taking its machinery wholesale. And that chloroplasts in plants came from similar bacteria, where, like, a, a multi-celled organism just went hum on a, on a, on a bacteria that could photosynthesize and just took its stuff. And that's how you get plants. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it's it's even weirder than that because devouring it kind of implies it was digested, which isn't what happened. It's it's it 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 entered into the larger uh, single celled organism and just kind of took up shop there and continued to live, right? Uh, like. Le- it continued to live as an independent organism inside of it, like while still retaining its own identity. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's like having, you know, it's like in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles with the robot that has Krang living inside <laughs> of it, right? Like it's, it's, it's like there, there yeah. is a whole ass different organism that has just been subsumed into a larger one. Um, and this, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, this this whole thing really made me, um, I don't know, we might get into it a bit later, I guess, but it made, it made me think a lot about the idea of formal and real subsumption in Marx. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, that, like, essentially... Uh, the point at which the mitochondria are inside the other organism uh, and are like contributing energy in some way, maybe by just doing their mitochondrial thing uh, or the chloroplast doing the same thing. Um, well, not the same, but effectively they're, they're fulfilling a similar role. Right. Um, uh in sustaining life, that's kind of like formal subsumption in Marx, right? Where you have the 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 tools of another mode of production are taken up by uh, capitalism or whatever, uh, and are used but are not themselves altered, right? 
they are they are they they remain like the hammer remains the same hammer it's just used in a capitalistic way and then real subsumption is when the design of the hammer itself is changed so as to accommodate the imperatives of capital um like it's it, it, in in sort of like Feinberg's terms it's like a more sophisticated technical code um and i think that this idea of endo uh sorry what was it endosymbiosis right endosymbiosis i think it kind of problematizes the idea of uh of a uh, formal and real subsumption because although in the case of chloroplasts and uh mitochondria like they have become so identified with their host cells that they effectually are part of them now and are not uh, independent organism anymore. Um, that's something that persists, like the, the the independence of the mitochondria and the chloroplasts is something that persisted for a very long time. And if you think about like the horizontal gene structure, this kind of permeability, all of this sort of stuff, right? Like it, it, the advantage of this like quote unquote real subsumption where the subsumed thing becomes like inextricably tied to its host is not as clear cut as Marx's thought experiment or sort of like theoretical construct would suggest, right? Like the, you know, the real subsumption is like obviously superior because it's so integrated into the overriding mode of production and the technical codes all worked out, blah, blah, blah. But actually, if you look at these biological examples, it's it's very much less uh, of a teleological uh, shift in that direction as like a clear 100% advantage. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've kind of thought this for a while. I'm really glad you brought this up because it, it kind of like made a connection in my head that like, um, like, I think when you kind of study this kind of stuff and like, you know, cybernetics and stuff, you, you can really have like integrated information systems that still do have distinct components and where you know, a component can actually gain an advantage by keeping another component at, at arm's length. And that, like, to totalization might not be more efficient than just letting... Like, I mean, in, in again, in a VSM kind of sense, right? Like, allowing the component part autonomy is actually more efficient than trying to totalize it. Um, and I think with Marx, and it just, like, I think the, the thing, the style at the time, the thing that was in the air was the totalization of capital, like it was going to be an all-devouring force, which I mean it is, but I think it can kind of lead you into kind of dead ends like that, where you kind of assume an imperative to totalize that isn't actually there, really. Like, I think capital's really good at picking and choosing when it's going to integrate something and when it's going to keep it at arm's length. Well, yeah, and, and exactly. And this kind of stuff it sort of problematizes our understanding of what totality means. Um, because yes, like the status of mitochondria or chloroplasts relative to their uh, enveloping cells is like part of a totality in the sense that Marx means it. Um, but uh at the same time, like, 
we have to acknowledge that there are all kinds of sort of interlopers in those totalities that do not like they don't um necessarily pose a logical contradiction that must be resolved in the same way that is implied in like a Hegelian logic, right? Like there, there isn't a uh, very strong uh, teleological uh, like gravity towards the resolution of contradictions into a um, uh, like more uh, or entirely integrated uh, totality. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, as, as Deleuze said, like, nothing ever died of its contradictions. Um, and <laughs> certainly a lichen has never suffered from being two composite beings, you know? Um, that, like, this, this, and like, I think we encountered this in neither vertical nor horizontal as well, like, the difference between the Hegelian notion of, like, that um, contradictions must be resolved versus, like, a dynamic tension kind of model where there's no good reason for dynamic tension to ever go anywhere or resolve in any particular way. There's no expectation of it. And similarly, like, the, the, two, the fungi and the alga in the lichen are in a kind of dynamic tension with each other and a, a collaboration, but they also have, like, an open and promiscuous kind of relation where both of them can flake off and actually pair with other organisms and, you know, other funguses and viruses can get into the lichen and contribute to it and do all kinds of wacky shit. And, like, there's no, there's no like, God-given plan to resolve any of that, like, resolve in quotes any of that stuff. You know, it's it's just dynamism, baby, you know? Well, and kind of, like, with, um, yeah, like, if, if you look at the evolutionary history of lichen, you've had, like, fungus and algae that come together as lichen, but then they just, at some point, no longer are getting a mutual benefit from each other, and then they get a divorce, and they go off, and they're just algae and uh, fungi again. They're not lichen. Um, And uh, that kind of, like, indeterminate direction, uh, directionality, is sort of like if you look at, say, you know, uh, like the possibility of capitalism forming in the Roman Empire or in the Chinese Empire or in Japan in the Edo period. It's like, yeah, like the components were kind of there and they were sort of tending in that direction, but it didn't end up happening and it ended up going in a different direction. And 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 that's sort of uh something really worth keeping in mind conceptually in terms of like yeah the the sort of indeterminacy or or uh like mutability um changeability of of uh these like social constructs as well as like historical constructs material constructs and as well as like biological relationships um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, real living systems, whether that's biological systems or social systems, are usually more open um, and weirder than you think. And if you try to like nail it down as like, oh, no, this this whole thing is definitely going in a direction and all these all these contradictory forces have to be resolved. You're probably wrong about it. So 
I mean, I, I think like that the Hegelian influence throughout Marxism is a real kind of problem. <laughs> you know, it just it's foundational, but it's a huge problem. <laughs> yeah, it, it, well, and it, and it comes from like it comes from like the thinking of like Newtonian physics, right? That like you know you can come up with these very simple uh, logical formulas that are incredibly powerful in terms of their. Uh, uh, like efficacy in the world, right? That that you know that it, it's just not that complicated, right? Um, and so sometimes you know sometimes there are overriding factors that just absolutely do push things in a direction, but like to assume that that is the norm is very much in error, I think. Uh, based on this kind of evidence, right, is is just like no, that's like much more of an exception than it is the rule. Um, yeah, because I mean, like in when we're dealing with these kind of biological systems, we're dealing with like non-reversible kind of processes, and like it's it actually more resembles like a thermodynamic process at a macro scale than it does the kind of billiard ball motion of Newtonian mechanics, right? Um, and yeah, when, when you're dealing with these kind of non-reversible thermal processes and all this kind of weird shit, like it's just probability and strangeness is going to be prevalent much more than predictability. Um, but yeah, I mean, this this all stuff, all this stuff is really intense. Like that, like um, not only for lichen being lichen are a kind of emergent combinatorial organism, but like the same is actually true just of like eukarya in general. Like you know, go look at your hand. Every cell in there is actually a composite being, like of of two at least two distinct, um, semi-distinct, you know, kind of but like deeply collaborative creatures. Like it's fucking crazy. Um, yeah, yeah, that's the whole thing. Is like it you move from like hey these lichens sure are weird to oh wait like maybe the entire concept of individuality is flawed um that's where you end up <laughs> <laughs> absolutely that is definitely where we end up right because um i mean there's a note here on the way there about like the way that like the fungal um or that the lichen relationship is kind of um contingent and promiscuous that like um they can for for some lichen, the, the the fungal spores will just leave on their own and then find another algal partner to pair with, um, or any combination of those things will happen. Um, it's a it's a really weird thing where like it is a it is an organism that is larger than larger than the sum of its parts, but its parts still do remain semi independent, but not really, but kind of. Yes, yeah, they are uh, conditionally independent, right? Uh, or at least I guess you would say like. Yeah, the, it, it sort of depends on the, um, it's almost like holographic, right? It's like the perspective you take on it. It's like, is this an integrated system? Yes. Does it contain separable parts that don't necessarily need each other to exist? Also, yes. <laughs> it's like they are doing these things continuously in time. They are like, quote unquote, likening as an activity because it is mutually beneficial to them. And they don't have to keep doing that, but they do keep doing that mo like most of the time, because most of the time it continues to be beneficial. Um, yeah, yeah. 
there's there, there's some notes here kind of later slightly later in the chapter about that notion that like there's there's an ecological fit to this that like um fungi and algae do tend strongly to pair up but the fitness of the pairing is kind of contingent on the match that they make for each other and that um what's the phrase they use here that it's 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 the song not the singer that appears to be important it's the metabolic song that they can sing together that makes the difference and not really the particular identities of the like particular species that are involved so um there's a, there's a there's a promiscuity and a kind of openness and a cosmopolitanness to it all yeah it's like helpful to think about this stuff in terms of like process philosophy right is like you know these are activities that are happening um and they are not uh uh they're not necessarily uh identical or like parted across time just because there's a continuity you can see there um the continuity does not imply like a substantial essence that exists beyond it yeah and there's just something about this these this little section that um I don't know, this book is weirdly, like, erotic in some ways. Like, you know, there's a, there's like a, there's like a sexual and romantic kind of through line to it all that um, I find very endearing and fun. Because, um, yeah, I mean, some sometimes when you're out on the prowl, it is really about the song, not the singer, you know? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and 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 uh, just sort of all the what is it the talk about like um, like entanglement right um, uh, and 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 entangling as a kind of um, uh, like a sexual sort of process um, uh, and and so this is like you know the, this idea of like the lichen and the algae. In, entangled with each other is sort of the the first the first pass of 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 uh almost a, 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 a it's it's not like it's not like sex in the sense of sex for reproduction it's like sex in the sense of the act of sex right it's, it's like it's like an entanglement of bodies um and then we learned that like Actually, the dual hypothesis is wrong, and there are all kinds of other beings that are also entangled in this big lichen orgy that's happening. Um, and and that that was so fascinating. It's like, wait a minute, what? Like they they kind of like put that at the end of the chapter to sort of like blow your mind again, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's nuts. It's more like the the um and hypothesis or whatever because like um the, the basic trick here is that some researchers were um had the idea to like grind up some um lichen and sequence the the genomes they found and expected to find only two but then there was just a lot of other shit mixed in there and they're like hold on there's actually quite a few different fungi and quite a few different bacteria yeah. all involved here and initially initially they they just filtered it out as noise like oh yeah that's just that's just contamination and then they're like, wait a minute, what if it's not noise? What if it's signal? <laughs> what if what if these are persist this p- specific type of quote unquote contamination is persistently present because it's actually a part of the lichen process and it's not uh it's not separable or uh 
isolatable down to uh, a binary relationship. Um, and and, and it, it even says in the book here, like, uh, lichens are queer beings that present ways for humans to think beyond a rigid binary framework. Uh, and this this is the case not only because it breaks up our idea of individuality or it breaks up the idea of uh, competition among individuals, uh, but it also uh, it also breaks up our idea of uh, binary relationships uh, because these like lichen polycules are everywhere, you know. Um, yeah, they're they're absolutely they're they're everywhere, and then like you know, it 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 kind of like shifts our perspective again on identity because then we start to think of ourselves as like, well, we're made up of human cells and all kinds of bacteria and viruses and fungi, and they're all collaborating together, and you get this notion of the hollow biont as a kind of like um you know ho- hollow from holos um meaning whole as like not just a symbiont, but a hollow biont. And like, are we all hollow bionts? Like are all organisms basically that? Because like, if you scale down to even eu- eukaryotic cells, they're fucking har- hollow bionts. And it just seems wherever you look, this stuff is there. Yes. Yeah. 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 No, hundred percent. It's nuts. Um, so that's kind of the, 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 the notion that leaves off on is this challenge to notions of identity. Um, yeah, there there is there is one other uh, thing I wanted to um, a quote that I wanted to bring up from the the chapter that I thought was really interesting. Um, uh, it says uh, lichens are places where an organism unravels into an ecosystem, and where an ecosystem congeals into an organism. They flicker between holes, like quote holes and quote collections of parts. They like flicker between the two. It's it's it, they 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 can't be seen as one or the other, right? And that this whole idea of lichens as places, it just sort of reminds me of like you know, um, I, in uh, like the Kyoto School of uh, Philosophy, they have this idea of basho, um, which is place, uh, and, and 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 describing describing experience as a place. Uh, or reality is a place, is sort of a stage in which things happen. Uh, or in 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 in, uh, in Heidegger, you have this idea of the clearing, uh, which may or may not be taken from the Kyoto School, but uh, uh, it's uh, describing our sort of whole sort of experience of the world in those terms. And it was really interesting to see that as like a way, a metaphor, or a way to think about these lichen and and just the idea of like. Yeah, the lichen is not just an organism or an ecosystem. It's actually both. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a city, yeah. Um, I mean, I think it gives some reinforcement to the notions that we got in neither vertical nor horizontal of like seeing um, social systems and movements as as ecologies, as as as, as both, right? Like as as things and ecologies of things at the same time recursively yeah yeah and exactly and i i I think it's uh it kind of gets also back to that like disagreement that happened between like beer and maturana and varela right over whether these cybernetic ideas uh that were found in biology about organisms 
could be applied to social systems. Um, and when we think about it in these terms as like, you know, an ecosystem that congeals into an organism and an organism that unravels into an ecosystem, Beer's, Beer's point of view seems uh, much more plausible, right? Like once we, once we have problematized the idea of the organism or of the individual, there is a greater scientific and conceptual apparatus to find some um, uh, like clear bridge to what Beer was trying to do. Uh, without just sort of running on an intuition that it was correct. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess there's also kind of one final point very close to the end here that um, under the kind of section on holobiont, um, that these, these, um, these assemblages always seem to be fraught with tension. And this kind of is touching on what we were talking about earlier with like the formal and real subsumption, that tension and kind of like, contrary dynamics within these things are very normal, right? So that one of these cosmopolitan um, uh, lichen structures might contain bacteria or viruses or something that aren't exactly contributing in an obvious way to the health of the whole, but are not also obviously detrimental to it, or you might have contradictory dynamics between them, but that isn't a... Uh, Again, nothing ever died of its contradictions, ex I guess, except if it gets swarmed with a virus that completely fucks it up. But, you know, um, it seems to be totally normal for there to be dynamic opposing tensions within a holobiont. Yeah, yeah, no, completely. And that's like, you know, again, that was something that we see in, in like Brain of a Firm, right? Uh, saying that these kind of... Uh, internal uh antagonisms are very normal but like yeah basically you can sort of do like the game theoretic payoff matrix for each actor you could identify inside of one of these hollow bions and like identify them as having distinct interests from one another but because the you know the song uh that they are singing is is in some way uh ultimately uh, or at least uh, uh, presently harmonious, um, it works out for them to cooperate. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, shall we do chapter four, Mycelial Minds? Uh, this is this is a, this is a fun fucking chapter. Um, it's all about LSD, psilocybin, and magic mushrooms. Yeah, this is this is a fun chapter, but I think it is also the chapter that I may, it, it may be where the excerpt I originally read about this book, uh, or sorry, from this book, um, in like, I think it was in the guardian or something came from, uh, uh, and, and, and it feels to me because like, it feels to me as though this stuff about mushrooms is much more, or sorry about fungi is much more widely known, uh, than the things that we've talked about so far in this book. So it was it was a chapter that was fun and interesting, but I kind of just blew through it. And I didn't take any notes because it was like I wasn't there wasn't any like huge revelations or anything like super new that I came across here. It was just like, oh, yeah, this is like psychedelics and fungi. And there were like interesting historical bits, but nothing uh, uh, mind blowing, uh, no, ironically. Totally. 
Well, yeah, it's the weird thing, right? Yeah, uh, it, yeah, it's actually the more mundane, quote unquote, stuff about <laughs> fungi is more mind blowing than all the stuff about psychedelics. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, we we can hit the high notes. I don't think it. I think it is a thinner it is a thinner chapter for those reasons. Um, and but we can we can hit the hit the interesting stuff. And um, I think a lot of it will be kind of familiar to a lot of our listeners anyway. Um, so. The chapter overall is about the relation between, well, again, it's all about relations, but the relation between fungi and specifically their effects on um, the nervous systems and the minds of other other organisms um, and the way that those turn into deep collaborations over time. Um, one uh, example we're given is the example of, what the fuck is it called? Um, Ophiocordyceps unilateralis. Um, which is the fungus that infects carpenter ants and turns them into zombies. Um, a lot of folks will have heard of this before, but there is a fungus that takes over the body of, of ants and then forces them to climb up onto plants and like clamp their jaws in a very particular way. And then, you know, turns the, the body into a, <laughs> just a big pile of fucking fungus and then sprays everywhere. Um, that's part of their, lo- the, it's part of the fungus's life cycle. It's a part of the carpenter ant's anti-life cycle, I guess, uh, part of its death cycle. Yes, it is very much the, uh, the, um, what is it? The, uh, 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 Boydian thing about like, <laughs> like accelerating your OODA loop while decelerating that of your, <laughs> your victim. <laughs> Yeah, there's some interesting stuff here that like, um, well, uh, at least I found it interesting that apparently the fungus doesn't, it doesn't like take over the brain of the ant. It just sort of bypasses it. Yeah, this is like the most horrific thing about it. It is, it is very like, uh, I have no mouth, but I must scream, you know, like, like it, it is, it is like, yeah, the, 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 the fungus doesn't bother with the brain. It just puppets. It just puppets the ant's muscles <laughs> and forces it to do these things while it's like, you know, uh, a prisoner in its own body. You know, uh, yeah. It, it like attaches to the muscles directly and then issues electrochemical signals to more or less just pilot it directly. And it it, it, it it's it's fascinating and weird and quite horrifying. Uh, because it's, it's, it's like, uh, it's the, the fungus is like heliocentric or sorry, heliotropic, right? It, 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 it follows the light to get to exactly the right altitude on the tree, uh, in order to maximize its, uh, 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 fung, uh, sorry, spore dispersion. And then it, then it just, it just makes a big mushroom out of the ant's head <laughs> and sprays the fungus everywhere and all the other ants that were following following it around uh, because their fellow ants uh, become infected. You know, uh, it's it's some real real horror shit. Um, yeah, and uh, well, I guess one of the things there is like the precision with which the fungus is able to control the organism. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. It's on a clock. It's on a clock. They all do it at the same time of day because they're following a a light based program. Yeah, it's nuts. Um, and so like that's it's kind of how you get into some of the 
interest in the effects of um of like fungal chemical compounds on on like humans or whatever you know um there's a lot of stuff there and then one of the bigger kind of points that's brought up is the stone date hypothesis that um it might have been for humans or for early hominids the encounter with magic mushrooms or psilocybin mushrooms specifically might have been the thing the thing that kick-started self-reflection language spirituality and just kind of caused all this shit to happen <laughs> yes yeah it was like uh it was like a, a sort of irrevocable mental uh psychological and evolutionary break um uh in in human history uh, is sort of the hypothesis, which is something that's like sort of supported, I guess, by the like the the fact that like you know uh, it's like w once you have like a feral child that hasn't been socialized in any way, they can never become socialized um, be because they've missed a critical period of socialization. So it, it it's conceivable that like you know people were tripping they got into some like weird different mode of thought and and then that became a social phenomenon uh uh by way of being shared from you know one individual to another to another to another um even without direct exposure to the psilocybin yeah right i guess that's a kind of um it's a big part of the chapter is kind of going over some of these the effects that it has on minds right like um what, what, when it's put under a microscope, what it seems to do is um, deactivate, I think, what's called the uh, default mode network in the brain. Like, so when, when you're doing your usual executive function stuff, just like milling around and putting cups on shelves or whatever, that's the default mode network. And it kind of um, keep, it keeps things on the rails. It keeps things on the straight and narrow. If you turn that off, things get weird. And it's those novel connections and those like unexpected patterns of thought that um that are, are the consequence of of um of, of taking so the, the psilocybin and the lsd turns off the default mode network and then opens up the gates of madness you know yeah and like this was so interesting because it's essentially like it's kind of saying that like the reason why people with adhd are so good at making mental connections between things is because our default mode network is so weak and 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 because it's so weak, we're always like we're sort of like constantly microdosing without microdosing. Like our just our 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 default mode network is always a little bit high, you know. Um, and 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 that is pretty that that's pretty interesting, right? Like when you think about you know, sort of hypotheses that we've talked about before about like you know. Um, uh the ability of uh people with ADHD to sort of like think around problems and, and, and kind of engage in this like exploratory mode that we saw with the uh the the high variations uh in the earlier part of the book. Um and then you, you think about that in terms of the default mode network and and also about the the stone aid hypothesis, right? That like like this could just be a evolutionary adaptation that pushes you a little bit more in that stone direction 
than your neurotypical person would be as a result of having the sort of like socialized results of um, people being stoned thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. Like, yeah. Well, here's a fun feedback loop for you, right? It's the ADHD hominid who was more likely to try out the mushroom and then go, oh my God, it's full of stars and have to tell everyone else about it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And I mean, it, you can kind of see in the language that people use about ADHD, right? Like, oh, this person is a space cadet or... You know, they have their head in the clouds, which are kind of similar is kind of similar metaphors or imagery that you would use to describe somebody who's high. Yeah, totally. Um, there's some there's some interesting stuff then about here about how um, LSD and psilocybin can and has been used to treat um, like uh, depression and anxiety and all kinds of things. And like it, it is the fact that it turns off the default mode network and allows for novel connections that seems to be the cure. Um so that like, you know, in, in, in the cases of like, you know, seemingly untreatable depression, the default mode network, like the being on the rails is the black iron prison that like keeps you down and blasting it open a little bit is the thing that allows for the cure to happen. Yes. Yeah. 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 Specifically like blasting it wide open. Right. Because the thing they talk about is that like in terms of psychedelic treatments, um, you can't, like, in terms of a, a, a therapeutic approach, you can't approach them in the same way that you would with a standard pharmaceutical as a, as a, me a mechanistic, um, you have this problem, I will provide you, like, the key that fits into that problem hole, and then we turn it, and then you're better, right? It is, it is, it is, you can't think about it in those terms because the thing that is actually therapeutic to people is the spiritual experience that they go through. And, and, and you can't, um, you can't invalidate that as purely epiphenomenal to the efficacy of the drug because it's actually the thing that is efficacious, right? Um, yeah. As they, I think as they put it here, it's like brains don't have experiences, minds do. Um, and it's the, the, the cure is at the register of experience, not just a kind of like, well, this tweet to the dopamine, dopamine receptors a little. Yeah. And, and, you know, you have people who go through these trips, they start out as like hardcore materialists and then they become hardcore idealists because they, they, they just they can't reconcile what they experienced with a materialist worldview um, because it was such a trick, right? Yeah, but but it's like, yeah, you can't, they can't reconcile it, but at the same time, it doesn't change the fact that we have a very good materialist account of why this happens. Well, it's, it's not a coincidence <laughs> this happened immediately after you took a bite of that mushroom, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've even isolated the active ingredient, you know, like it, it, it's it's like it's profoundly material, but people uh, often can't reckon with it in those terms. Yeah. And and I've had this argument with people quite a bit. It seems to be, I don't know, a thing that I don't know. It seems like idealism is like coming back as a trend or as an in vogue right now. 
and I, I, I'm so confused by it because it's like, I mean, I think everything we've seen on this show in terms of talking about nature and reality shows that, like, if you take a materialist point of view, but you admit of things like emergence, like, it is, it's not the billiard ball universe or the clockwork universe that you're describing when you describe matter or material reality. It's actually something that's like way stranger than that. It's like the, the, the materialist option is the more bizarre option. And the idealist option is less radical because it only is going to get you the things that are deducible from human thought, which is pretty fucking limited compared to the unbelievable variety of reality when you take into account things like, you know, um, like computational limitations um, and, uh, and, and emergence and, you know, just the sort of, bottomless abyss of investigation of of material reality right yeah it, it's it's nuts right because like um i feel like yeah i, I think like we, we might be a kind of in a, a sort of rare breed or whatever and that like I, I i think of myself as a kind of like a kind of emergent mechanist or something or like a computationalist but like the the, the thing that closes the loop is that like um, once you admit that brains are material information systems as well, and therefore like ideas or like patterns of thought are information patterns in the material universe, then the, the the kind of distinctions start to break down a little, and you can see how the layers of emergence really really stack up. And yeah, well, simultaneously not having to uh, follow a rule where. Uh, mental events must be reducible to material processes because it's it's simply like we do not have the requisite variety yeah. to do that. We can't actually think that. And because it's, it's like what Beer says in, in Brain of the Firm, right? Is that that, you know, if you think about like incompleteness, it's like we have a level of description that is appropriate and in some ways extended, like we talk about with this stoned ape hypothesis, to what it means to be a human, I don't know, being. Um, but that in no way suggests that we can provide an exhaustive description of any other level of complexity that is in, in internally consistent with itself, right? Yeah, I think that's that's why the information stuff and like computationalism is so important there, because like you you then discover like information limits and the way that information barriers form. Because like you you need you need to use more than ten neurons to think about ten neurons. Yes, and that's, yes, that that just kind of escapes from you very quickly. Um, and so the the act of thinking about the neurons it it it, it is a layered mechanic like electrochemical mechanical thermal system all the way down but like it, it, your and and your patterns of thought are real material things but there is an informational limit on how like it, it can turn back on itself and it can recurse but 
there's a limit on the recursion. Yeah, you're like you could provide accounts of things that are at a different level of uh, thought or uh, being, but uh, necessarily there will be variety attenuation involved in order to reduce them to something that you can articulate in your mode of thought. Um, and, and, and that's okay. Right. That just means, that just means you've rendered it functional to your mode of thought, but it doesn't mean you've provided a complete or an exhaustive description because you absolutely have not. Um, uh, because there are no, there are no exhaustive descriptions, right? It, it's just, it, it, everything is incomplete. And I mean, like, similarly, I think, like, uh, if we get to, like, the problem of determinism, like, the, the universe could be hard deterministic in, on some level. It could be. But you're never going to have the information required to work that out, so you might as well continue on as if it's contingent. Like, the, the, moment to moment, you as an information system have limited information, and you are you are always playing that game of trying to guess what's coming next, and so probability is always going to be a thing for you. Even if it turned out somehow that the universe was just a thing on a tape somewhere, the, it would still subjectively be true that it doesn't seem that way. Yeah, and... and, and uh... If our scientific understanding of physics, information theory, and so on is in any way accurate, there is no level. I mean, it may not be, right? But there is no level whatsoever at which you could validate determinism. Like, you know, even if you were at a far higher level of cognition, or information processing than a human being, it's still incomplete. It, 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 and, and there are things about being human that you just would not be able to exhaustively understand in the same way you wouldn't be able to exhaustively understand uh, the uh, existence of like a um, subatomic uh, particle configuration. Yeah. Um, yeah, and like, it, it's just like... Those limitations are very important, and like if if it if if somehow it turned out, I mean, it's not something you'd ever know. But like if if the truth was actually that the universe was a program on a tape, well, you thinking about the tape is on the tape too. Um, you you are inside the tape. You're not going to get to find a way outside it. Um, yeah, and 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 I mean, in terms of like you know reconciling spirituality with this stuff, like in terms of like you're having this trip and and. And being like, wow, this is so mind blowing. It's so like all these all these categories have melted in my mind, and there's a sense of like you know oneness and all this kind of stuff. Like, I think that understanding reality in this way makes you, I don't know, at least in my experience, it makes you more amenable to being conceptually flexible it doesn't mean you have to agree with every woo concept you come across but it allows you to be a little bit more like promiscuous in your thinking right uh where it's like like you know this, this it, it, it's like for the longest time right um you know as, as after the enlightenment or even probably like in you know the confines of like the catholic church um, prior to the Enlightenment, where there was a really strong 
focus on on rationality and so on. Um, these like stories of like uh, mythological creatures becoming other creatures or uh, of chimeras or uh, you know these these like ways of understanding the world in terms of like mutation and hybridity were seen as like uh, oversimplified primitive speculation, right? But actually, although it is not in exactly the same terms, of course, a lot of our contemporary science has validated that worldview more so than the one that presumed to be uh, correct because of its um, focus on rational analysis and categorization, right? Um, and, and, and so, like, if you can have that sort of openness of mind, it's going to keep you from getting into some conceptual roadblocks that you might otherwise not have. And so, you know, you could kind of entertain the idea. It's like, well, if we have these different, like, levels of information processing, you know, there is nothing that rules out necessarily that, like, you know, great old ones exist, like these, these like, uh, beings beyond our understanding, eldritch existences, like angels or whatever, like, I, they, I mean, probably not angels in any sense that we would describe them, but, you know, there could be these, you know, cognitive existences that are so vast that we can't even see them. Um, but we just have, we have no way of telling, right? Uh, it, it, yeah. Well, I mean, like we've, we've already in this book had encounters with kind of weird cognitions, right? Like that, if, if, if fungi do thought, which they really seem to do, then it kind of throws open the gates to all kinds of shit. Like, does a planet think? If it's an information system, it fucking might do, you know? It, it might, right? The guy hypothesis might be true. It doesn't seem to be provable because it's such a complex phenomenon, but we might find evidence that it's true, right? Like we might find traces of its truth. And then whether it is true or not becomes a matter of sort of um, uh, like aesthetic dis disposition, right? Of, of, of do you, do you tend to find that fits with your sensibility of how the world works because it's it's not accessible to us to actually comprehend something like that we can't definitively prove it yeah and and the, the lack of comprehension is for me at least i think where it tips over into a sort of spirituality i guess like i mean i, I generally don't describe myself as a spiritual person but the hyper-complexity of the universe, I think, is awe-inspiring. And, you know, I, I, I kind of, maybe this will illustrate it, but, like, I was watching something ages ago where it was, like, um, something about the rainforest, whatever, and there was an interview with um, uh, some indigenous people, like, and uh, this young woman was going on about, like, how we have to protect the trees because spiritual reasons, like, they're, they're the home in which the ancestors live and all that kind of shit. And it's like, I don't. I don't mean to shit on her or indigenous people or those traditions or anything. But like to me, it, it seemed really odd because she's saying we have to protect the trees because they're the, the residency of the ancestor spirits, and I want to protect protect them because they're trees. <laughs> like trees are trees are sufficiently miraculous as right bizarre information systems and just miraculous beings. The, the fact that they fucking exist is 
in-fucking-credible in, in, in the beginning. And I, I kind of don't feel that need to mix in ghosts and shit like that to, like, make it special. I think it's quite special in itself. And, like, everything we've read in this book is really fucking special. Like, fungi pink. That's fucking nuts. You know what I mean? Um, I think that there's, there's, there's plenty of wonder in nature, and it's disgusting amounts of complexity. <laughs> that's, that's kind of enough for me to trigger that, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's like one is one does not necessarily invalidate the other as a proposition. Right. It can be true that both it is the home of the ancestor spirits and also trees are in themselves. They have inherent value as these incredible things. Right. Um, but it also could be the case that you believe in one or the other. Um, uh, and and uh yeah, I mean, again, it, it's sort of like what they describe, I think it's in this chapter, right, with Dawkins, in terms of, like, are mushrooms that produce psilocybin uh, in a kind of evolutionary re uh, relationship with humans that is analogous to the... Um, uh, the 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 ant zombie fungus that we talked about earlier, uh, the cordyceps, yeah, is 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 that an analogous relationship or not? And and the author is arguing like it kind of comes down to your aesthetic sensibilities as to what counts as valid and not in terms of relationships between beings, because they're sort of evidence you could put in both directions and it comes down to like how do you define these terms more so than an open and shut case um, right it seems to come down to um i think he uses whitehead and russell where one says you know the the world the world looks like what it seems to on a fine noon day or whatever and the other says well it seems to, it seems to me that it's whatever it looks like when you wake from sleep at the in morning right like it's do, do you do you aesthetically value like clarity or are you a bit more amenable to dream logic um yes yeah that yeah it was whitehead uh you know the sort of uh, Russell's teacher and kind of like infamous uh, process philosopher uh, for writing very hard to understand books. Um, uh, he was trying to explain the 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 sort of like difference in sensibilities between himself and Russell to Russell. It's like the reason why I don't agree with you about this is because I view the world you know, at that sort of like early dawn, you know, when you've just woken up and everything's a little bit fuzzy and, and indistinct um, and sort of impressionistic. And you view the world in sort of the clear light of noon where everything is very sharply defined, right? Um, and, and, and completely illuminated. Uh, and and uh, yeah, that's, that's a pretty good way of putting it, I think. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's interesting, like in the degree to which, like, yeah, like at some level, science is an aesthetic endeavor. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I think this was this earlier in the book that it was, it was kind of talked, touched on as well that like the kind of, you have to use your intuition at some point that like, you're just not going to get like a pure analysis doesn't get you very far. You have to, um, Yeah. Um, 
And like by those criteria, I, th I think likewise that Dawkins lays out three criteria for like an extended phenotype, right? So uh, broadly, you could say that a, a beaver's extended phenotype is its dam, right? Like it's um, it's it's a thing that's not manifested in its body; it's manifested in its external behavior, and it but it is a part of the genome, right? Like they're pre-programmed to build dams, but um. Uh, if it's to qualify as this, it has to be, what, that there has to be, like, variation, um, and that the the variation, like, it you know, has to have some sort of fitness, like that, better... If you, if you make better dams, you are more likely to reproduce, um, right? Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so for the cordyceps fungus, it, it seems to tick, tick all the boxes, right? That, like... Um, there will be instances of the fungus that are better or worse at controlling the ants, and the better success means they'll propagate more. So yeah, extended phenotype. Um, also, like the the cordyceps seems to be strictly dependent on its relation to the ant. Like if all the ants went extinct tomorrow, it would probably go extinct too. Maybe who knows? It might figure out a different trick. Yeah, on what fa failing some you know un unanticipated mutation. Yeah. By contrast, like human beings have started to cultivate psilocybin mushrooms and so on, and have are, like pr proliferated them quite a bit, and the mushrooms are probably quite pleased by this. Um, but if humans went extinct tomorrow, they'd probably be okay. Like they'd figure out what to do. Um, yeah, they're 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 at that stage of like formal subsumption, quote quote unquote, right? Like this is this is a. Uh, functional but in some ways accidental relationship between these two beings the other thing though is that um the 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 point about fitness um human beings don't seem to value uh psilocybin producing mushrooms in terms of some like quantifiable metric of uh fitness right like like people don't seem to be like they don't necessarily value them according to like i want to get the most high i possibly can you know like give me just the biggest dose just just blow my mind right like there is a there's a sort of like you know connoisseur variation between mushrooms but it isn't like uh, a clear criterion for fitness that can be identified in terms of these ones will be, uh, be selected uh, as part of this relationship and therefore will be more fit to uh, continue to propagate their genes. Yeah. I mean, the, the, these trips are famously non-quantifiable, right? Like, it's just, you can't really put it into words. Um, but if you soften your focus a little, it is a very interesting entanglement that they've gotten themselves into, whether there's a hard dependency or not. And it, it has enormously increased the number of mushrooms that exist in the world, right? Because of this relationship that exists between us humans and the mushrooms, we figured out what what uh, they do to our minds, and we like it. Uh, well, many of us like it, and so we've you know got to work trying to cultivate them in the most effective ways possible, and have produced truckloads and truckloads and truckloads of mushrooms, um, which is very different from the way that they uh, function um, in their natural uh, environment, which we originally found them. 
So, like, the, the cordyceps fungus very obviously wears the ant like a glove um, as a tool. Do, do, do psilocybin mushrooms wear our minds like a tool? Probably, maybe not, but who gives a shit? It's an interesting thought. <laughs> Yeah, some some people think they do, right? Like some people like think that if you are tripping in a specific way, you can like talk to the mushroom. Um, yeah, like 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 it, it's it's like you know it's it's like Final Fantasy VII, and you're communicating with the life stream or or uh, you know whatever, right? Um, you're 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 connecting into the psychic network of the mushroom world. Um, uh, but is that something we can substantiate? Not as far as we can see. Uh, so it doesn't, it doesn't seem that there is a like strong puppeting relationship or like backpacking relationship, even if we, um, accept the stoned ape hypothesis as true. Um, cause that's like a very intermittent um, kind of relationship that exists between humans and uh, these mushrooms, because for like most most human beings, for most uh, of history, have not had uh, access or sorry, have not consumed psilocybin for uh, ritual or psychological purposes. We've had all kinds of other drugs that we've engaged with, but if there was this relationship that existed at some point in our evolutionary history, it was lost for most of humanity until like, you know, the 20th century when it became globalized again, or yeah, it became globalized. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, maybe who knows, um, one way or the other, it has been substantial and significant in its, in its impact on us. And that's kind of all you can really expect. It's, um, it's not 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 as integral to our life cycle or death cycles as it is for the ants, um, but um, it's a big deal. Chapter five before roots. Um, this is another one that's absolutely fascinating um, in that it gets into the like I guess the origins of terrestrial life on on the surface of the planet, like out of out of the water, um, and the the deep collaboration between fungi and plants. Um, they can't live without each other. It's sort of like examining plants from the perspective of fungi, like defining plants in terms of fungi, uh, their relationship to fungi, um, as opposed to seeing the fungi as something that just kind of happens to be there in the root system. Um, yeah, this is kind of opposite to what we got in Tree Stories, or it elaborates substantially on Tree Stories, that we, we get the fungal perspective. Yeah. So the general story here is that um, many, many moons ago, the Earth was a desolate place. Um, there was life in the oceans, but on land, um, which would be unrecognizable to us now, it was just rocky bullshit, um, and it was irradiated and horrible, and there was basically no living things up there. Um yeah, it's it's kind of like if you look at you know fresh magma that or that is cooled and produced um, uh, volcanic rock, right? Um, that was just kind of the whole world because there was no soil anywhere. Yeah, um, 
um, this is the story how how soil comes about. And um, so, like bacteria, algae, fungi, and all kinds of weird fish were stuck in the ocean. But there was there was a there would be an evolutionary pressure towards getting onto land because then you get access to unfiltered sunlight and there's a lot of rock up there. And if you can break open the rock and get the nutrients inside, then you're in for a really good time. Um, uh, algae and bacteria couldn't do that on their own. Um, it was the fungi collaborating with them that allowed them to actually move out um, of the water as weird composite organisms that resembled or like they, they were the beginnings of what would become plants. Um, these early algae planta-like structures didn't have roots they had fungus acting as roots instead yeah yeah this is the part where they talk about entanglement right and it, it, it says uh it says this wasn't sex fungal and plant cells hadn't fused and pooled their genetic information but it was sexy and 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 i was like well it really depends on your definition of sex, right? Is sex is sex about reproduction or is it not? Uh, is it about so, about other things? Because if it's about other things, it is sex, right? Yeah, it's not, I mean, maybe in a biological sense or the sense that like, I don't know, very strange people would follow it's not sex, but... You could definitely think about it that way if you were. Um... There's there's a deep intimacy and a sensuousness to this whole relation, right? Um, uh, but yeah, so like the, the combination of these uh, organisms were able to crack open um, the, uh, the the ability to to live on land and give give rise to the entirety of terrestrial life, really. Um, and the the trick is that the uh, plant half of the composition can photosynthesize, it can pull carbon out of the atmosphere, it can pull light and produce um, sugars and bits of carbon and such, while the fungus can dig around and break up rock, get access to phosphorus and all kinds of weird shit like that. Um, and they can exchange these things with each other. There's some really weird numbers here that like, you know, for a plant will give up about 30% of its sugars and carbon and shit like that to the fungus. And the fungus will exchange it for you know, phosphorus and all kinds of stuff um, that it's pulling out of the soil. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there's like, there's like constant exchange happening between fungi and root systems. Um, and, and well, plants more generally, but through the root systems, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. These, these mycorrhizal fungi. Um, and again, like the, the chapter is called Before Roots because all this stuff was happening before plants had specialized root structures. They seem to have grown roots primarily as a docking station for the fungi, and then later developed the ability for the roots to mimic what the fungi were doing anyway. But then even then, the fungi still outperform, these mycorrhizal fungi outperform the roots by quite a bit. Like it's still, you still can't do without the fungus. Yeah, well, this is so interesting, right? Because it says like mycorrhizal hyphae are 50 times finer than the finest roots and can exceed the length of a plant's roots by as much as a hundred times. They came before roots and range beyond roots. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, yeah, roots can do hyphae fungi-like things, but their efficacy is enormously increased by engaging in exchange with the uh, fungi. Yeah. 
So, I mean, this is very like the what we saw with the like and the, the the mutual benefit, but like this is dialed way up to eleven, and it's it's a these are organisms we're more familiar with, I guess. Um, that they're they're kind of farming each other, right? That like the fungi are farming the plants, and the plants are farming the fungi in a mutually beneficial relationship. It is very fucking strange. Um, yeah, well, it's 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 so complex too, right? Because we're not just talking about, like, a given type of fungi. We're talking about, like, many different types. And their interactions with each other are highly dependent on the very specific environmental context they're in, right? The composition of the the rock, the soil, the humidity, the light the other plants in the area, the other fungi in the area, like all of this stuff is relational. And, you know, at the end of the chapter, they sort of talk about how like scientists who study fungi, like mycologists, can only sort of, with their best efforts, get at the edges of these sort of relationships in very controlled laboratory circumstances because it's impossible to, um, at least with the technology we have now, it's impossible to see it like uh, in its natural context. There's just so much going on that it becomes way too high variety, way too noisy, and you cannot figure out what's happening uh, without seriously isolating the actors in these networks, right? I mean, and if if you're doing that kind of reduction stuff, then you're just like you're harming the thing that you're trying to study. So, like, okay, I want to study. I want to study the the mycorrhizal stuff that's going on in this forest. Well, what's your fucking plan for that? Dig it all up. It's not a forest anymore. If you do that, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Like we we don't have non-destructive ways of intervening in that system in order to like render it comprehensible and so it's sort of like you either have the components or you have the system but you can't have both you can't have both at the same time it's an um it's an uncertainty problem (laughs) certainly um um there's some really interesting stuff here i found about like market exchange within these networks um and these these relationships um which i could not have guessed was going on. Yeah, it's it's very interesting to me. Um, so, so we have this um, researcher Kears, um, and it says Kears's findings are surprising because they suggest that neither plant nor fungus is in complete control of the relationship between the two. Between them. They are able to strike compromises, resolve trade-offs, and deploy sophisticated trading strategies. In one set of experiments, she found that plant roots were able to supply carbon preferentially to fungal strains that provided them with more phosphorus. In return, fungi received more carbon from the plant, uh, supplied it, sorry, um, supplied it with yet more phosphorus. Exchange was in some sense negotiated between the two, depending on the availability of the resources. Kears hypothesized that these reciprocal rewards have helped to keep plant and fungal associations stable over evolutionary time. 
Because both partners share control of the exchange, neither partner would be able to hijack the relationship for their own exclusive benefit. Um, although both plants and fungi tend to benefit from the relationship overall, different species of plant, uh, uh, sorry, um, uh, no, that part, last part is not, I don't think, relevant. What I think I wanted to bring up there was that this is, now it sounds like this is giving us sort of a um, micro level demonstration of why markets are necessary. And because these are, this is the result of of laboratory experiments and hypotheses, like thought experiments, probably like doing sort of like um, game theory payoff matrices. Um, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to, well, just because of my own my own sensibilities as well. I'm hesitant to say, oh yeah, like clearly this naturalizes markets in a way that is a slam dunk to say like clearly because nature does this, it is the best way to do it. Um, uh, and, and even that we could say that is actually exactly what's happening. Because we, we always know that there's, there are, um, there are complexities to these situations that we don't grasp, right? Um, and, and, and that's that this stuff is super interesting. Like, I find it fascinating, but I think it, it's tempting to, to use this as a way to naturalize the validity of markets as a definitive um, mode of social organization. And I just think that would be uh, overly hasty. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, right. Um, that is the kind of risk there. And, like, I mean, I think there's even a note here somewhere that, like, you know, they've, they've observed that a fungus, like if it if it has um, access to like a dense patch of phosphorus and then access to less dense patches, it'll sort of move, it'll move the phosphorus in the network to, in its own network, it'll move it from the dense area to the area where phosphorus is more scarce, apparently to gain access to more carbon. Like it, it does a cost, um, you know, a supply demand cost thing. It computes. It's a biological computer. Right. Which is fucking remarkable, right? But it's it's kind of like, if you're trying to guess at the motivation, it could also be that it just does that anyway. Like, it, it tends to f primarily fa favors equalization of phosphorus across the network in the first place, and then secondarily happens to get a higher payoff of carbon um, exchange from the plants at the other end of the network. It, it's it would be too much of a projection to say that it's definitely money-grubbing behavior on the part of the fungi. But it's also like it is there as an observed phenomenon. So it it's something we are challenged by. Yes. I I, I, I think that, yeah, I think the thing is they, they talk about it in terms of buy low, sell high. Uh, but if it is actually true that the, the, the network is equalizing the phosphorus, it's not really the same thing as uh, seeing a really good trading opportunity and going all in on it. Um, like, you know, if you see a, like, oh, yeah, uh, there's a massive shortage of rice in this country, so let's send our entire rice, uh, 
um, hoard our stock, uh, our, our, our stock uh, to that country before anyone else so that we can make the maximum uh, profit. Uh, this doesn't seem to be exactly that. It seems to be exploring opportunities, but not necessarily... Uh, not necessarily engaging in what we would see as like profit maximizing behavior. Um, it's, it's it, it might be optimizing for something else that also implies uh, like increasing the number of trading partners, right? Uh, there, there, there's so, there's something there that isn't quite reducible to buy low, sell high. Right, because it doesn't have it doesn't seem to have like a labor relationship there. Like it's not, um, you know, it's it's not like you know, a, it's not like a plant proletariat that is at the mercy of um, the fungal kind of overlords who harvest surplus value. You know, no, no, no. It's much more like the um, the sort of like neoclassical fable of the market, or or the. Uh, the uh, the idea of um, uh, like the, the the primitive mode of production in in Marx right where it's just you just have these small holders and they make their little thing and they exchange it amongst each other um, like it's not uh, you don't have um, you don't have like capitalism right you don't it, 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 it's it's a what do you call it um, it's not a market where everyone is a price taker because you can direct your resources towards more profitable uh, ventures and set like set quote unquote prices or exchange rates uh, accordingly. But it is also like an, uh, uh, a market where there are enormous number of actors to the degree that monopolizing doesn't seem to be possible. Mm -hmm. Th that that's a really key thing here that like um there's there's a very promiscuous relationship going on here that uh, a given plant might be in contact with many uh many fungal networks and the each fungal network is in contact with many plants and here here's a fun a weird thought right like maybe it turns out that you know neoclassical economics is actually true for the mycorrhizal networks but it, it and it works and it actually does work for them but only because they don't have surplus value and the law of value and labor right <laughs> yeah yeah i mean there's some things about it that are just simply impossible but there there there's a kind of uh rhyming between the uh like the the sort of ideal fantasy of the market that neoclassical economics presents and uh this very uh diverse market that you see exist in uh these um mycorrhizal uh environments um and relationships yeah it it it's just a funny it's a funny thought and i, I think the the key difference really is that like this is this is what kind of makes us step back from the trap of kind of overgeneralizing this to human society is that like the the plant and the, the fungi their relationship doesn't have the law of value or like a, a captive sort of side of the the equation that is at the mercy of the other um and so maybe maybe you know mutually beneficial exchange is more true for them than it could ever be for us you know um under under mm -hmm, capitalism mm -hmm, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah um i don't know weird shit you know um there's a lot of this chapter then it's about the 
impact of these relationships on the rest of the ecosystem um, or the rest of the planet, really. Um, obviously, the, the emergence of this relationship is kind of foundational to the emergence of terrestrial life, uh, like uh, above water on the fucking planet, um, which is pretty remarkable. But like, it also seems to um, have a big impact on climate because uh, like, once um, once plants and fungus get really good at this kind of shit, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere plummets and you get a mini ice age. Um, the efficiency, uh, I think what, what's it called? The, the symbiotic efficiency of the relationship, the, the kind of efficiency of the extraction of phosphorus in particular and the exchange into plants um, seems to be a dial that modulates the uh, composition of the atmosphere. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and like, you know, uh, what is it? Um... You know, this is just one of those examples where, like, uh, the evolution of life on Earth happened in such a way that was, like, utterly catastrophic. You know? Um, I I think there's been other cases of that where it's like, oh, yeah, then they just sort of, like, went in a runaway development direction and then, like, almost everything on light Earth was killed, Right. Like it, like, <laughs> like the uh, the uh, the uh, the the climate crisis that we are in currently is by no means the first example of uh, life on Earth uh, utterly fucking itself over and and causing catastrophic changes to its environment. There's there's been algal algal blooms that choked themselves out. There's been this this shit where like. Oh yeah, that yeah. I think that was the one I was thinking of. Yeah, uh, so remarkable stuff. But um, yeah, I guess there's kind of um, a notion here. Like it gets into a lot of um, you know climate crisis stuff, and especially with agriculture. That like content- modern agriculture has fucking ruined the, um, the, the, the 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 this relationship, right? That like it's so fucked. It's so fucked. Yeah. Uh... I, I mean, th- this is not something that they actually get into into the chapter, but like I are in the chapter, but I couldn't help but think like, you know, earlier in the chapter, they provide uh, this definition of what a plant is. Right. And it says that, like, um, plants don't have roots. One of my undergraduate professors confided to a class of astounded students. They have fungus roots, mycorrhizas. Right. If that's true. And we've created these um, varieties of plants that are designed to live in a hyper nutrient saturated uh, soil in the context of a very impoverished uh, uh, mycorrhizome. then essentially those aren't plants if you follow that definition they're they're not plants anymore right they're they they are something we've made that is derived from plants but can only exist in like the context of industrial agriculture and 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 like sort of coexists with industrial agriculture in a way that is like actively destroying mycorrhiza that would support real plants. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. There's these dysfunctional relationships that, like, because um, there's, there's work being done here to, uh, you know, work on improving the situation, like get get these more robust uh, relationships going again for the health of the soil and get all that good shit happening. But then, like, it turns out it's kind of hard to coax some of these plants and fungus into cooperating again because they've become spoiled. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like it, it's one of those things where, like, you think you're fucked and then you have the realization of like you didn't even know how fucked you were right like this is so much worse than we anticipated right because yeah they can try to isolate and reproduce like basically like you know sort of what they call um uh like probiotic yogurt mm. for the soil right <laughs> where it's like we've isolated this one type of uh one type of gut bacteria and it's in this yogurt and if you eat it you're going to be healthy and of course it doesn't do a goddamn thing right because it's like no actually your gut flora is incredibly complex and dumping a whole bunch of one type of a microbe into that gut flora does not actually improve things, right? Because it's it's it, it, it like it's like we said, right? That the situations in which these um, microrhizomes exist and the relationships that are implied with them are so specific to the place they're in and the very specific. Uh, uh, configuration of forces among the actors because like they describe how you can have um, microbes like uh, fungi that are um, conceived of as quote unquote cooperative fungi but if you put them together with other so-called cooperative fungi they actually switch over into being antagonistic and competitive with each other and there is no cooperative essence to these fungi. It's simply the product of a network of relationships that when you go in and you do industrial agriculture on uh, uh, on the, the land, on the soil, whatever it is, whatever biome it is, you just like eradicate that entire network and you're having to like start from scratch, right? But then the problem is, like, the computational problem of, like, how to get, like, you know, people joke about how, like, it's, like, impossible to have, like, a healthy polycule because there's so many moving parts, right? But, like, obviously they, they do exist. And, 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 but that's, like, really, really hard to make happen. But, like, imagine if it was, like, a polycule of, like, 2,000 people and you had to engineer the specific computational result where like it works together more or less uh as opposed to starting from like two or three <laughs> that's the kind of problem that we find ourselves in and trying to restore the soil and then on top of that there's there's some types of uh fungi for the like the the soil that are easy to produce on mass 
and will be sold by manufacturers as like, oh, you can like put this in your soil and it's going to make everything great. Like it's going to, you know, organically restore your soil, blah, blah, blah. But it's the same thing as the probiotic yogurt. It just happens to be the type of fungi that is easy to produce um, and might be useful. But it doesn't mean we can easily produce all of the types of fungi that we might need to provide a solution. Yeah. And so within the frameworks of capitalism and industrial agriculture, those results are always going to be disappointing, right? Because the you're just not going to have the consistent, like, it, you know, I think I think trying to restore these kind of relationships would, you know, improve the health of the ecosystem, would improve yields, but it's not going to do it consistently in a way that's like easily replicable everywhere. Because these, these relationships figured themselves out over the course of millennia, or fucking way longer than that, right? They, they, they've been figuring themselves out for a while. Then we came along and within about 50 fucking years destroyed it all. Um... And then what's your plan for fucking getting that back? You know, it's like it, it took a million fucking years to, to create it. You're not going to get it done in a day. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not even necessary. Like it, it's it's not even necessarily a million years. Like, you know, it could be like they describe, you know, a new volcanic island comes about and it's freshly colonized. But the mix of actors in that network isn't something we can really synthesize. We might be able to encourage, like, you know, the fungi to spread to these areas from other areas that are healthier. But we can't really, like, you know, we can't really, like, develop a package that we could just deploy into a absolutely uh, deprived soil and get good results. Uh yeah. They they seem to be they seem to be like cats, right? That like they'll do it on their own terms. Anybody who's ever owned cats or worked with them is like, you you can't make them do shit. Like they'll fucking do whatever they want, and like you can maybe coax them a little in the direction you want, but they're just gonna hiss at you and do whatever they want. They please, you know. Well, yeah, and then and then it's like, well, you got to go get plants from the seed bank because those are plants that actually like live in healthy soil and they don't live in like like a. a soup of 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 uh fertilizer and roundup um uh and the the thing is like you know we were talking uh when we talked about like uh the half a half earth socialism game right like they were providing sort of compelling reasons for why um relying on organic agriculture is a pretty poor way to meet the food needs of the world uh, in a way that is um, space effective and also uh, um, uh, cl climate effective, uh, like in terms of uh, uh, providing, um, yeah, the right amount of inputs and outputs, so an efficient amount of inputs and outputs that that overall will work towards uh, balancing the climate situation. Um, but when you look at something like this, it's like, oh, yeah, but actually we don't have a choice, you know, because the the industrial one is the problem with the industrial one is not only that it creates like monocultures and pollution and, um, you know, uh, all that sort of thing. 
it also massively deteriorates the soil because uh, because you have all the fungus uh, die out the the uh, the the fungal uh, connections, the sticky fungal connections that hold the soil together, uh, you know, through a really aggressive tilling and then also, you know, chemical treatment um, die out and they, they no longer are holding it together. So it's much easier for it to just blow off and, and you lose an enormous amount of soil every year be, just by doing basic agriculture growing your your plants harvesting it and so on um and so like you're going to face really serious soil depletion um not just in the terms of like it it requires a massive fertilizer load in order to grow properly but in terms of just there being soil there in the first place um because it's it's all it's all blown away you know um, and you get you get desertification and stuff like that happening, right? Yeah. Um, um. Yeah. Is there anything else for that chapter? I think we've covered all of us. No, I, I think that's about it. Yeah, I think it's um, it's very uh, disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating, but it's also disturbing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of horror stories in this book. Like. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, the stuff that Mark says about the metabolic rift um, and that we covered previously, like, I feel like you really, really can see it um, at work here. And the thing is that while Marx talks about the metabolic rift between humanity and nature, it, we can see that, you know, with a better scientific understanding, it's more like there's sort of a vast multitude of metabolic rifts between humanity and like all kinds of non-human actors. Um, and uh, the fact, the thing that stays constant between those two understandings is that capitalism utterly destroys the relationship <laughs> and the advantage of capital. Because, you know, these, these plants, that are engineered for these environments, they are like, like physical embodiments of the sort of capitalist death drive. Thank you for listening to General Insectiness. While you wait for the next episode, you can find us on Twitter at GIUnipod. You can find us on Facebook and all the podcast apps, so like, rate, and subscribe. You can also find us on the internet at generalintellectunit.net. If you go to patreon.com slash generalintellectunit, you can give us a couple of bucks a month to help keep us alive and get access to a community discord. This show is part of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast network and research collective. Go to emancipation.network and check out our sister shows, such as From Alpha to Omega, Swampside Chats, and Jumpsuit Utopia. They're great shows and great folks. As always, thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this show, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Music